Well, my name is Todd, one of the pastors here. I met a few new people, and uh, it's good seeing you all today. Uh, if, if you are new, uh, man, I hope you enjoy hanging with our family, and uh, I'm looking forward to just our time together uh, in the Word. If you need a Bible today and you don't have a Bible, there's uh, some guys or gals that would be happy to bring you a Bible. You just have to raise your hand. And if you have your Bible, you can open up to the book of Isaiah. We're, uh, we're coming to the close of looking at this particular book. We've been spending the last few weeks on it. And uh, over the last four weeks, we've been looking at this thing called justice. Now, I hope in the time you had to just walk with both Christian and with Chris through this, that you left it going, you know what, I want to figure out what does it look like to dive in and to gain God's heart for those that are marginalized, those that have been pushed to the fringes, not just to be these nice people that do nice things for people, but because we believe the gospel is proclaimed powerfully we believe we model Jesus' heart for the world when we dive out there believing that God is seeking to save people from all kinds of different positions and places and everything in between. And so, man, I pray that you did that. I know I left the last four weeks challenged, thinking, okay, what does this look like for me? But what I want to talk about today is, though, what happens if you were challenged and you decided that you want to, but all of a sudden you started to count the cost and you thought, oh my goodness, what is this going to take to actually go bring about justice? Now, I say that because as one who dove into the orphan care world a little bit, I remember the first time somebody talked to me. I was like, yeah, let's go. You know, we're going to dive into the orphan care world. And then we got out in that orphan care world, and it's tiring. You get out there, and you're tired. And not only that, when I was hearing Chris talk, it, it, some of it is just we have to be compelled. We have to believe that it's worth it. But if you're anything like me, I started thinking, you know what? I'm already tired. What in the world? How am I going to go dive into that when I'm already worn out? I say that just from this standpoint, because living in this world's exhausting. I don't know about how you feel about it, but I have kind of struggled lately, even reading the news on the internet, listening to the news on TV, because kind of all the pompous blowhards that are these ones that give us the news, it comes across as like so defeating and I just get tired. I look all around me and I see people that are so fearful of the future. They're wondering in the back of their heads, how can this world like right ever sustain itself in just the midst of all the like, what I feel like is just this rage and this desperation of humanity. It just feels like at any moment, the whole thing's just gonna collapse in on itself. I'm fatigued by kind of the weird convoluted morality where somehow in the midst of everything we've created kind of an oxymoronic intolerance of the tolerant. We don't even know what to do anymore and how to treat people. I'm tired of older men that molest children and the people that enable them only to find out those ones that have molested children commit suicide inside of a jail cell unless you think the Illuminati did it and then you have a different website. And then I look at my own heart. I have fear of people huge within me. I've got pride. I've got judgmentalism. I have lust. I'm self-deceived. And even this morning, I got onto my internet. I'm tired of my junk email box. Anybody else? So many, like, plying and trying to get me to go to a porn site and go out with a good-looking Russian woman and then also to lose the weight that I've definitely needed to waste, waste away from me. But it's just this nonstop thing coming at us all the time. I'm just tired. And I think what that means is, is, does the Bible then give us a vision for why this is worth it? 
right? If it doesn't give us a vision for it, we're not going to go there. In fact, I think if you've just watched lately the different people that have kind of pulled away from Christ, these more kind of popular kind of Christian pop people that have pulled away, sometimes I just wonder if in the back of our heads, if the gospel has become so anemic within the church and, and our understanding of the greatness of God and what he's doing right now in the world, if it's gotten so little that we wonder in the back of our heads, why do we even do it? And if we're ever going to be these people that God's called us to be, I really do believe this, we're going to have to see something that's powerful. And I think this is what the Bible does for us, and I think this is something that the book of Isaiah does for us, and I can't change the slide, and this is going to be no good. Am I doing something? Oh, there we go. Because when Jesus came into the world, one of the most powerful things he said is, and he says this in a, in, in a way that just, the profundity of it is, is it's detached to all that's been going on all throughout the Old Testament when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the reality of this life, he says, is it's something that's so unique and something that's so powerful. This light shines in the darkness. And I love this statement, the darkness has not overcome it. See, I know that it's sometimes it feels like we're losing. Like, look at the entire ministry of Christ. If you watched it, it looked like he was winning. And then all of a sudden, right, it looked like he was losing. And it was all was going wrong. Jesus Christ crucified, dead, and buried. They didn't realize this. But we now know on this side of the cross, Jesus wasn't losing at all. He was actually winning. And I think sometimes in the back of our head, we see this world in the decay. And we, we wonder about the church and what's happening. We feel like we're losing. And let me just say this. From a biblical standpoint, our God will be victorious. You can't stop him. And I think because we've made this gospel simply about avoiding hell, people are falling away from it, missing the fact that the good news is not just that people don't go to hell. The good news is that King Jesus reigns and will one day be King of kings and Lord of lords to the praise of the, and the glory of God the Father. We have to start realizing we are not on the losing side. When Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, it was a declaration that not only does God win, through his son but now all of us that are his people sit in that place of victory and we have to act like it we need to quit acting like we lose we don't lose if you read this book at the very end called revelation we win and not because of us but because of the grand victory of jesus christ and so what I want to do today is diving into that is I believe that if we can see the future, if we can really see it, and this is what Isaiah is doing, he's writing this book to people, he's having a vision because they're not seeing the world like they need to. And if we can capture this vision of Isaiah, if we can see the world like he does, we can face anything in the present that comes at us. In fact, I think this is what the Bible is doing all the time. It doesn't necessarily tell us when things are going to happen, but it does simply intentionally seek to strengthen us saying, look, you can have a confidence in what's about ready to happen. Now in Isaiah, where we're going to be today is we're going to be in, in chapter 60, well really chapter 59, but we're going to look for the next three weeks at Isaiah 56 through 66. Now in this, what it is, is it's kind of a, a reflection of sorts by by the writer in chapters 3 through 55, where he's looking back on everything and he's just boiling it all down for us. In chapters 1 through 2, it was more like a, a, a looking into things. It was a prelude about, about what was ready to come. But in 56 through 66, he's, it's a theological reflection. 
Now, not only that, but it's written in a certain way. Now, there it is. Just go with me. If all of a sudden I start doing this, just check out for a second and then check back in. It's written in this thing that's called a chiasm. Now, if you've ever had a chiasm before, if you take penicillin for it, you can get over it. But that's a whole other story. A chiasm is just a writing structure that ancient people oftentimes used. You see this like in the Iliad and the Odyssey and different books. But what they tried to do in, in structuring it was to get you to... <sighs> I need batteries, I think. Oh, good. What they try to do is they try to frame it, though, so that in all these different pieces as it comes together... Seriously, can somebody bring me some batteries? <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. How about the Mets coming back? All right, let's talk about this. But everything is placing to the point where, does everybody see what's going on in the middle? The most important thing that he's trying to get to is the announcement of the kingdom. This is why they would write in chiasms. They would write in such a way in poetry to be able to help us to understand, but also to help us to now point at what was most important. And the most important part of this passage where we're going to start today is found in chapters 60 through 62, where literally the good news is, the greatest news in the world is a kingdom that is coming, that is lorded by Jesus Christ, against which no evil will ever be able to stand. That's the good news. Now, not only is that, though, kind of what we're getting to, there's another side of it. Could you go forward a few slides just so we can get there? I intended to be able to use it. Keep going. Right there. Okay, stop. Whew. Here's my beautiful art. You ready for this? Seriously, this art is going to change your life. If anybody wants to afterwards, I will make copies and I will sign them for you because this is, you're, you're going to be sitting there going, I wish I had this art to hang up in my, in my house. So what we're going to do also is not only look at the structure of it, but we have to understand the perspective for which Isaiah was looking at this. Sometimes when we think of a vision, we think of somebody standing outside of time on a timeline, and they're looking at time this way. The problem is, though, is that in Isaiah, he's not standing outside the timeline. If this is the timeline, he's inside of the timeline, and he's looking this way through time. So go to the next slide. If we think about it, a lot of Isaiah is going to be talking about a first coming in which Jesus will just be coming back. So he kind of, he looks through and he sees a first coming. Then he also sees in another way, he sees a second coming. Go forward to that next slide. And he looks and sees those two. And oftentimes he doesn't know when they come and sometimes they all cram together. But he's looking through this. And then he sees another group of people called God's people or what we call the church. And oftentimes it kind of looks all muddled together. And so that's where I think like even the, the Israelites, as they were longing for the return of the Messiah, they expected this grand champion, this warrior that was going to come back and defeat all things because that's the way oftentimes the prophets displayed it. It was sometimes hard to understand how things were going to happen. But now that we can pull ourselves back and see this, Isaiah 53, he first came as the suffering servant, but then also then he came back and one day he is going to be the conquering king. So that's what we're looking at. Now, the other thing that we're going to have to understand is just a little bit of an illustration to kind of get us going. Again, I'm kind of laying this out so we can get there. It's not only that we need to understand the announcement of the kingdom and how Isaiah was looking at it, but he's going to talk about a building project. Now, nobody judge me what I'm about to say, okay? I've started to watch like fixer-upper shows. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass you. But I just started to watch it. Now, at first I thought, anybody that watches Fixer Upper shows, I don't think, number one, they love Jesus, number one. And then number two, you know, it's like, who wants to watch the Fixer Upper? I'm kidding, by the way, not loving Jesus. I just, like, why watch them? But then I get why people like Fixer Upper shows. One is just because, oh my gosh, like the thought of like Chip and Joanna coming into my house and fixing it up, you know, I'd be like, oh, this is 
so wonderful, right? But the thing that we love is the before picture and the what? After picture. We love looking at what it's like before, but we love this fix it up project of what it looks like after. Now what's gonna happen in Isaiah 59, 14 through 60, 22 is we're gonna see a before and an after picture. We're gonna see humanity before and then after God has done his work, we're gonna see the picture of after. Now this is why I think it's so important. If I lose sight of where all humanity is moving one day, if I miss the fact of where God is moving everything, I'm gonna become defeated. I'm gonna forget why I'm doing what I'm doing. And in Isaiah, he's gonna give us a picture of what humanity is gonna look like one day, okay? So everybody with me on this? You with me so far? There's one side of it, how he wrote it, till we get to the announcement of the kingdom. There's another side of it in which we look at it like he's looking at it. He's looking at it through history this way. And there's another aspect of it, the before and after. Now go to the next slide. Oh, no, no, stay at that one. Let's start with the before picture. Now, one of the ways in which Isaiah portrays it is he just says it this way. Justice is turned back. Look down at 14 if you've got a Bible. Righteousness stands far away, for truth is stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Verse 15, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now, there's four words that are very important inside of this, and I want you to see those four words. The one is justice, righteousness, truth, and uprightness. Now, what he's talking about is, is that inside of culture, in order for culture to be healthy, in order for a civilization to be able to be healthy, those four things are a mandatory must. And what God is doing in the before pictures, he's looking through everything. He's looking through families and cities and towns, through cultures and nations. And he's saying what is lacking inside of all humanity is justice and righteousness and truth and uprightness. I think even for us, right, we can look around our culture and we wonder, where's justice? We wonder, where's righteousness? We wonder, where's truth? We wonder where where uprightness is. Now, the whole point of kind of laying this out is to help people to understand the before picture of humanity is not good. It affects everything from our families. It affects us internally. It affects our society. And it tells the same story that across humanity, every moment since Genesis 3, there's been injustice, unrighteousness, lies, fraudulence, that's just the world that we live in. And I think one of the reasons that all of us are so tired is we've realized this world in its current form is a mess. In fact, the way that I put it is, is that because verse 15, truth is lacking, and Paul even talks about this, that the reason is, is because we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We just live in this moment in time that's been happening all throughout it since the beginning of the fall. It's just a mess. When I was thinking about this idea of how broken we are, there's a, there's a poet, a great poet and a songwriter, Bob Dylan. Everybody know him? Oh, Bob Dylan. Actually, I really do think he's a phenomenal writer. But he was trying to kind of capture what this world is. And I don't know if you remember this song. I'm a, I'm a product of the 80s, and this was a song from the last 80s. But it's called, and you'll see this, Everything is Broken. He says it this way, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken. And here's his term, everything is what? Broken. Seem like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Next slide. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking. Everything is Now, here's the reality of the world, and everybody kind of knows it. The world is what? Broken. 
Now, on one level, though, if you're not careful, you can begin to think, well, where's God in all that? I think this is what Isaiah was even thinking as he's writing, as the Spirit of God is leading him along. Go to the next slide. As he says it this way, and again, don't misunderstand this. God's not absent. Look what he says there. The Lord, what? Saw it. God is seeing it. Every time that injustice happens in the world, sometimes we wonder in the back of our heads, where's God? And in every aspect, in every facet of culture, as it's torn at the fabric apart from justice and righteousness and truth, every aspect of it, God sees it. And there's two realities when we kind of wrestle with this that I think this passage gives us that is so important. One is, is it displeases him that there was no justice. Now, that word displease is kind of an interesting word. If I say the word displeased to you, it kind of sounds like what your dad was, you know, after you didn't mow the lawn. He was displeased. But I think if you understand actually this Hebrew word, it's something that is so important for us to understand, to, to keep us ingrained in joining God in what he's doing. He wasn't just displeased. God is shocked. He's appalled. God is disgusted and incensed with this world in its present form. That's the word that's used there, if we, if we understand the Hebrew correctly. He so feels that way, and here's the key of it, that he's going to change it. God is committed to changing this world. But not only that, though, look at verse 16. No, go back. No, no, no. He saw that there was, look at this, no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. What's he talking about there? Well, if the first aspect is number one, that God is determined to change this world because he's disgusted with the outcome. It's not as if he's caught off guard. He's, his heart is broken in what humanity has done. He's also looking at it and realizing humanity can't save themselves even though we try like crazy. We try to save our lives by, by finagling things and working things through. We try on the grand political systems. We try communism and socialism. We try capitalism. We try every kind of ism that you can think of. But there's no ism that can fix this world. Humanity can't fix his problem. In fact, the way that it's supposed to bring us to in this section is being angry and frustrated, but it's also supposed to bring humanity to ask the question, then what are we supposed to do? If humanity can't fix this mess that we're in, then what are we supposed to do? Next slide. It says in there now, and this is where it's going to go from Bob the Builder kind of a mentality. He's going to now lay out something bigger for us. He says he, and we'll talk about who that he is in just a second, but he put on righteousness as a blessed breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. Wow. Now on one level, if this was just Bob the Builder, it would seem like a cartoon character coming in to fix it all up, you know, and he'd be doo -doo -doo, you know, and he'd be going and getting his permit from the city and we're going to do these things. But this is the picture of it. This evil that has infected God's world now requires a warrior. It requires one, and the way that he talks about it with clothing is one who comes in, and the display of who it is, is that anything that has ever stood against God, any evil, he is going to come at that evil, and it is going to be utterly destroyed. 
To answer the question, what man will do this, God's point is, is I will robe myself, I will display myself, and everything will be destroyed in my way. I will now wipe out anything that's ever stood against me. Now, why is that important? Well, if in the back of my head, I wonder if God can actually do this, if I don't believe in a future in which God can do this, I'm going to start to get tired and I might actually give up. But Isaiah wants us to know our God is absolutely unstoppable. He is a God that's going to ride through this world that's so filled with things that cause even the worst sinner to blush. Any evil that's ever stood against him, any, any sin that ever thought that could not be overcome, our God is going to come and he is going to bring judgment. And this is what we're going to talk about next week. He's going to bring judgment in such a way that all those that have ever stood against him will stand in horror. This is how serious God is about this fallen world. This is why we should take it seriously. Next slide. So for Isaiah now, just for us to get this, he's looking throughout all of time from the very beginning clear to the very end, and he says, this is what I'm seeing. Next verse. Now in this moment, as he looks to the future, he sees a day, though, that's coming. Now watch this. The corner's going to start to get turned. We've got to watch this. He says, so they shall fear the name of the Lord. Look at this, from the west and his glory from the rising sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which wind of the Lord dries. In other words, there's coming a time, we don't know when, in which finally God is going to be done with this evil that's in this world. And he's going to come and the idea is like a flood, like Noah. And he's going to land upon this world in such a way that all evil is going to be done away with. He's a warrior. But look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now there's two realities here. To fire us up on one end, God is going to take care of evil. But for all of us, though, that know that we stand as broken people in front of this God, we need a redeemer. We need one, like was talked about in the book of Leviticus, who will buy us back, who will make us his very own. So it's now not just this God who's going to come as a warrior, but he's going to come as a warrior to all of those now that love him, that want to know him. And then the key word there is those who turn from their transgression. He's not going to be a warrior. He's actually going to be the gentle Redeemer. See, on one end, what he's saying is we need to tell the world, we have to tell the world, our God is despising evil and he is going to return. And he's not going to return like we sometimes picture him as this old, decrepit man giving us wisdom pearls from on high. He's coming back as a warrior. I think sometimes we've made our gospel about, you know, just, hey, save your skin. Are you kidding me? Bend your knee now because he's coming back as the king. And our God, let me just say it this way, is angry. And we don't know, kind of know what to do with that. How can we be a God of love and a God of anger? He's both. Well, on the other side of it, to all of those, look at this, that turn from their transgression, what will they run into? A redeemer. Now, let me just talk to those of you that may not know Jesus right now. I'm not trying to sell you fire insurance. I'm not trying to give you a turn and burn message. I'm just looking at you stating a simple fact about the reality of God. You do not want to run into a God that you haven't dealt with him and turned from your transgression. We're going to talk about this more next week, but in case you're not here next week, I just want to say this. 
Today is the day to repent because the beauty of it is, is that Jesus Christ is this redeemer. He is the one, Isaiah 53, who came and bore our transgressions as the means of perching us and making us his very own. You don't want to face that God. No one wants to fall into the hands of that God. So in other words, now when we talk about why is this important, why should we dive in, why should we now look at this and join God in what he's doing, even when we're tired, because this is where all of history is moving, every last aspect of it. You might feel if you're a student in here that whatever you got going on Monday at school is the most important thing. I'm here to tell you it's important, but it's not the most important thing. You may feel like, how in the world am I going to pay my credit card bill? I'm telling you that's not the most important thing. You might be facing the reality of even something as serious like cancer, whatever. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing that is going on right now in this world is our God is preparing himself to return to set all things straight. And we need to understand, and here's the way that Isaiah is going to put it, which side am I on? It's so important. And he's looking at us saying, we've got to stay in there. Look at the next verse, verse 21. Not only is God doing this, but look at the word that he uses here. He says, as for me, this is, and I love this word, my covenant with them. Sometimes we don't know what to do with a word like like covenant. But the word covenant is something that's even, I would say, this bigger than a promise. God has decided that he's going to do something. In fact, I don't have time to walk us through this, but this is God right now, I believe, having a conversation with the son, with the servant that he's talking about, and he's explaining to them, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a covenant with them. Now look at this. And my spirit is upon you. I believe this is Jesus Christ as my son. And my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, the way that I'm going to fix this is, is I'm going to pour my spirit out and I'm going to give my word. And the way that it's going to happen is it's going to change this world. People always say to me, why do we read the Bible? Is it because a verse a day keeps the devil away? We read the word because it tells us of the greatness of what God is doing right now so that we might join him. So I think one of our biggest problems is, is we read the Bible to try to fix our current life and almost inviting God to, to change or to join me in my life, missing the fact that the Bible is an invitation to join him in his life. He said, I'm going to give these things so that you'll be able to pull it off. And let me just put it this way so that we understand it. I think what he's telling us is is God has not abandoned this world. God has a plan for this world. God has a joy for this world. God has a purpose to transform it. He's coming back. He is going to defeat anything that's evil. But in it, let me just say this to you, church. What he's saying is, is we are all part of the greatest thing ever the greatest. Now, don't get me wrong. If the Mets were to suddenly make a comeback and they were to climb back out of the basement like they are seeming to be doing and they were to land in a wild card spot and they were to play the Dodgers of Los Angeles and defeat the Dodgers of Los Angeles. Aren't you going to be sad, though, if I'm a prophet? (laughs) No. That seems to me like a great thing. It pales 
in comparison to what's going on right now. He's telling the story of our God not appearing to win, but he's winning. He's orchestrating everything, pulling it together. In fact, even the coming of the suffering servant, the one that was to come, it says happened at just the right time in history. And I promise you that someday at just the right time in history, God is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back to set all things straight, we will finally have clarity. We will be able to see. But for right now, this is Isaiah giving us a vision. This is what God's doing. Join him in that. Forgo the life that you think you're supposed to have. Forgo the life that you think is important. Now, don't get me wrong. It still has to happen inside of marriages and families and jobs and communities and cultures. We'll talk about that. But join God in what he's doing fully. Go for it. In fact, that's what I think he's doing in verse 1. Go to that next slide. You're going to have to go a few because I had to not use my slides. But can you go through all the way to 60 verse 1? Okay, let's just stop right there. Notice what he says there. In light of this, he's saying, arise. Get up. I'll never forget I was doing a workout. I know, again, it doesn't look like I used to be a runner, but I used to be a runner. I used to run in the uh, over 300-pound Olympics. No, I just kidding. I used to be a runner. And I'll never forget we did this workout one day and, and we just kept running and running and finally, man, I just fell to the ground and I'm, I, I threw up and then I'm looking there and I remember my coach looking at me going, get up, I'm worn out, get up. I think in some ways this is God's way of looking at us going, arise. Now watch this, shine and the your here is not speaking about Jesus, and I don't have time to unpack this. The your here is speaking about us. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You. Get up, church. Yeah, you don't understand, man. I feel like right now the government and everything about it is turning against us. Have you read what's going on with our brothers and sisters over in China? Do you hear what's going on with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East? Do you understand what's happening all over this world to which God says, get up. Oh my God. I feel like we're losing. I don't know what to do. I look around our world and the decay and the rot of it. We thought if we just voted in Republicans that things would be better. I thought somehow if we could just do certain things, God, the world would get all better. And he looks at us and he says, arise. But God, why? Because my light has come on you and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, church. Look at verse 2. I get it that behold, a darkness has covered the whole earth and thick darkness the peoples, but upon you the Lord will arise. His glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light. The kings of the brightness of your rising. In other words, evil in its complete facade might look like it's winning, but God is saying to us, it's slowly dying and what's coming to life is actually my people. When he talks about it arising on you, do you get who you are? Remember I said that those first four weeks? Do you understand who you are? You're a people to which the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon. You're a people that are a people of the book. You're a people that has been gathered together and been given an amazing name. You are called Christians, little Christs. 
You are called sons and daughters of the King Most High. But there's something more to this even. He says, in this, you will be seen. You, there's somewhere in there, his glory will be seen upon you, which we're going to answer at the very end of this. But the nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. What's he saying? He's saying there's coming this point in the church, and again, I don't know if you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial, or you don't even know what that means. But there's coming a time in which God's people will be exalted and lifted up in such a way that the whole world will look upon it and finally the reality of Philippians 2 will come to pass. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He goes on and he says this about it. Look at verse 4. I'm just going to now read through this kind of quickly. Lift your eyes up all around and see... They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall be come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations, they shall come to you. He's saying this reality of no, you don't understand. I know it feels like evil is winning, but at some point God will remove all this evil and he starts giving this metaphorical reality. We start saying to us now in a beautiful way, all of humanity is going to start moving towards this. Verse 6, he even says something about it. He says they're going to bring to you, and, and this is weird. I was thinking today, do I really want a multitude of camels? But here we go. And I'll explain why this is important. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and I don't even know what that means. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall, shall be gathered to you, and rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up to its acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he's made you beautiful. Verse 10, foreigners shall, shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you, for in my wrath, sure, I struck you. In other words, there's ways in which God has, has brought his wrath upon his people at a time, but he says, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, like in the book of Revelation, day and night that shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. In other words, they, shall, they won't be able to oppress you anymore. They are something that's going away. All these evil kingdoms that have ever stood, those nations, he said, shall be utterly laid to waste. But the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. I'll make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you, the ones that used to be the ones that came down on you, they're actually going to come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, that's the name they're going to call the people of God. And whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You will suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breasts of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make you over, your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. 
Now, on one level, you're like, what? What's he talking about? I want you to notice two things in there. This is important. One is the amount of people. Did everybody see the amount of types of people in there? They came from here. They came from there. They came from everywhere. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to bring amongst you the people from all over the place. Now, this is Isaiah, and he's looking through time, and he's watching as people from all kinds of places and all kinds of positions, they come now to this people that are Zion. In other words, they come to God's people. In fact, he says, sons and daughters get brought to it. What that means is this. this. Christianity started with a bunch of Jewish people in the middle of the Mideast, but then it began to spread and went through Europe and Africa and Asia. It crossed the sea and came to North America and South America. It even went to a God-forsaken place like Australia. The gospel has gone to all places, inviting all kinds of people. And one day, all of these peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation will come now and they won't worship kings and they won't worship pop stars and they won't worship superstars and they won't some sports stars. They won't even worship themselves. There will come a day when people that speak all kinds of languages will stand and they will proclaim one alone that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. They will come and they will worship with his people. That's what he's saying. Now just think about that. That's crazy. Where do people from different tribes, tongues, nations that look different get along? Nowhere. Where do they? In the people of God. He's saying to us, the reason this is worth it, the reason you get out there is because this is where God's people are. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is they, look at all the things that they bring. They bring different jewels. They bring items. They bring everything. In other words, there's coming a time where not only will people come, but everything that makes these people special will be brought to the people of God. I was thinking about this as music. They're going to bring their music to God. Now, just imagine this for a second. That means people from Vienna are going to bring Mozart. (laughs) New Orleans, jazz. The Caribbean, steel drums. Kampala, vibrant dance. Mexico, and I learned this last night from one of my neighbors because it went all night. Mariachi. India, Bollywood, I didn't know. SoCal, a garage band. They're not only going to bring themselves, but with them is going to come music, is going to come food. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for that. Is going to come language and art and sports and architecture. In other words, there is a God and he's coming back. When all things are finally brought to bear, it will be people from all over the world bringing with them. So therefore, heaven won't just be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Oh, no, it won't be. The final reality of new creation will be all of these different people enjoying the world as God intended it. That sounds cool. But there's more. 18. Violence shall be no more. Oh, goodness. What will that be like? No more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more. Your day light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. 
Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon will draw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Look at all the times he says, forever and never, evermore, and words like that. Look at verse 21. Your people shall be, a right, shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. In other words, everything will be right. That's where the world's going. It's all moving that way. I don't care if you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus. That is our future. There's coming a day in which finally everything that all of humanity has longed for will be realized. There's coming a day in which every political system that's tried to do but has not been able to do will be realized when Jesus is finally king. There's coming a day in which finally we will not have to worry about death. We won't have to worry about sorrow. We won't have to worry about killing. We won't have to worry about the loss of a loved one. We won't have to worry about sickness. We won't have to worry about any of those things because our God is going to wipe out and this is where all humanity is moving. You may wonder about this world and what's going on and I'm here to tell you that is where it's going. That's why, look at this, verse 22. He says this at the very end, I am the Lord in its time. I'll hasten it. What's he saying? It's gonna happen. This is going to happen. That's powerful. That's unstoppable. That's permeating, that's spreading, that's transforming. And that sounds all nice and wonderful, but then the obvious question is, okay, Todd, you've traveled with us through time, now what? I'm gonna try to spend the next two weeks trying to convince you of this, but let me just go with this. Look at verse one in Isaiah 60 to kind of pull this to a close. What do we do with this? Verse one, get up, get up. I think if Jesus were to come in here, he would look at the church and say, get over your pity party. Get over your fear. Get over the way in which you think that political parties are gonna save you. Get over even, I would say this, your constant pursuit of thinking that this world has everything in it. And if you don't get everything from this world, that somehow you're gonna be a deficient human being missing the fact that this world was never designed to have everything. That's in the world to come. And he would look at us and say, shine. And he would say to us, just like I've been saying to us, do you understand who you are? You're not just anybody, church. You are ones to whom Jesus spilt his blood. You are ones to whom God saw an eternity past and chose you before time even began to be his. You are the ones that he's beautifying right now and preparing for you a place that you can't even imagine. You are the ones that don't have to fear death anymore. Do you realize how crazy that is? 
You don't have to fear death because King Jesus, when he rose from the grave, defeated death. And in defeating death, now all of us that know Jesus, it's not as if we won't die. But the stinger, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, has been fully removed. And there is no wrath for those of us that know Jesus Christ. Shine. What else does that mean? I think how we live now tells the story of the future. I think how we live matters. I think one of the main reasons that young people are leaving the church in such droves is they're dying to see the church as the Bible talks about it. And the problem is we're trying to convince them not to go to hell as if somehow that's the only thing God's talking about. It's not less than that. But Jesus doesn't want to just save us from hell. He's got way bigger plans than that. We need to see this as our time. We need to see that that God has not revealed himself in any other religion on this planet. I know the world tells us that there's all kinds of ways to God, but there's not. We are the ones that he's left on this world and he's saying to all of us through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, shine, be the church. Don't think you're perfect, we're not. That's why Jesus came, he came to save sinners. But we're the only culture on the entire planet that has the message of rescue for the world. We're the only one. Message of rescue is not found in Islam. The message of rescue is not found in Mormonism. The message of rescue is not found in any other ism or philosophy or religion out there. We're it. It's our time. We're not the bosses of the world. We're simply here so that the world might experience the gateway to the future, the future world that God has for us. That means we need to to realize that we're gonna transform all things. We're gonna dive in into the lowest of the low, not because we're higher than everybody else, but we realize that all humanity is created in the image of God. So whether they sit in positions of power or they sit in the lowest position possible, God has called us to live amongst them to see the future kingdom, the future reality shine. He's called us to dive in and to show people that things like music and art and business and literature and how we dress matter. It's not just this somehow thinking in the back of our head that Jesus is just saving souls. It's not less than that. He's saving everything. It's the church being this radiant beauty to the world to be drawn to him. It's the message of renewal. It's the message that I was talking about with one young man. He said, one of the reasons that's keeping me from following Jesus Christ is I look at the world around this world and the environment and the way that it's falling apart and Christians tell me don't worry about it because it's going to burn anyways. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not an environmentalist, but I'm a conservationist. And that means Christians should care about this world. We should care that pollution is happening all over the place. Now, do I think we should worship the world? No. But this means also that we're to be a church in which all the genders come together in this beautiful complement of what God calls this church to be. This means this church needs to have races from all kinds of different people. This means this church needs to have people from all kinds of different abilities, whether it's ability or disability. God, if you look at through Jesus Christ called the blind and the sick and the deaf to himself, and in fact, I would say this, until Cornerstone becomes more serious about the disability community, we're not gonna convey the gospel that we need to to this world. 
I think he wants to reach out to old people. I think he wants to reach out to young people. I think he wants to transform lives across the board. And when I think about what Cornerstone is supposed to be, how we live now should tell the future. And I think Cornerstone has done a phenomenal job, but I think we can do better. I think in your marriages, they matter. Your kids matter. Your job matters. It matters because it tells a story of the greatness of God. And so in the name of the Father, church, who spun this world into existence, turned it loose, and is going to make sure that what he began, let me promise this to you, our God will finish. In the name of the Son, who loved this world so greatly that he came and he died, and he purchased a people for himself by his very own blood to make his very own, that we might be a display, that we might now be these ones who the glory of God shines out amongst us into this world. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, who by which none of us can do this because mankind can't do it alone, empowers us to be the people God's called us to be. Church, this week, in the midst of the decay and the difficulty and the heartache and the midst of the tiredness, arise, shine. Do you hear me? Arise, shine. Arise, shine. In other words, arise, shine. Some of you are like me? Yes, you. Yes, you.